I want you to turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 1, and for our time together this morning, this Lord's Day, I want us to look together at this opening chapter of the book of Job. You no doubt are very familiar with the story of Job, and so there's a sense in which I don't know that I can say anything to you that you do not already know, but simply to remind you of some of the basics of your Christian faith. The title of the message today is very simply this, The Sovereignty of God and Suffering. The Sovereignty of God and Suffering. I want to begin by reading what is really the heart of this passage, Job chapter 1. I want to begin reading in verse 6. I'll read through verse 12. My goal is to spend the entire time today looking at the entire chapter. But the Word of God reads, beginning in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, for there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Every Christian believes in the sovereignty of God. In fact, if you do not believe in the sovereignty of God, I call into question if you truly know the true God of heaven and earth. To believe that God is sovereign is to believe that He rules and reigns over the entire created order. The only question really among, question, uh, among Christians is, to what extent is God sovereign? Now, we certainly believe that God is sovereign in salvation and in the eternal destinies of men. That is a cornerstone of this church. But a second question begs to be answered. Not only is God sovereign in salvation... But is God sovereign in suffering? Yes, God is sovereign in the best day of our life. Is God also sovereign in the valley of affliction? Does God oversee and manage the affairs of this world such that even suffering is a part of His designed will? Does God actually initiate suffering 
in the lives of his own children. Let me be specific. Is God sovereign over the loss of one's job? Is God sovereign over the loss of one's possessions? Is God sovereign during the time of a bankruptcy and the loss of one's business? Let me press this a little bit more. Is God sovereign in the death of a child? Is God sovereign in the loss of a daughter, the loss of a son? Is God sovereign over the devil? Does God work all things according to the counsel of His will? This is why I'm drawn to Job chapter 1 for our time together this morning. In this monumental opening chapter of the book of Job, we see the close relationship between the sovereignty of God in heaven and the suffering of man upon the earth. We see here the relationship between God and Satan and the lives of God's people. We see here the relationship between decisions made around the throne of God in heaven and all hell breaking loose upon the earth. What we discover in Job chapter 1 is that God is the primary cause, capital P, capital C, of all that comes to pass. God is not the author of evil, neither is God the author of sin, yet God is the author of a perfectly designed plan that does include evil and does include sin. God, the primary cause, works through secondary causes to accomplish His highest purposes. There is only one primary cause. There are multiple secondary causalities, instruments that God picks up and uses. God works through the devil. God works through evil men. God works through human suffering in order to accomplish the higher purposes of his life. But nothing just happens. There is no such thing as luck, no such thing as uh, an accident or a mere happenstance. There is no such thing as bad karma or a bad day or anything like that. Not when God is upon His throne and God has orchestrated and designed in one way or another all that comes to pass. For we know that God causes, not observes, that God causes all things to work together for His glory and for our good. Ephesians 1 verse 11, God works all things after the counsel of His will. I don't know that we could speak on a subject of greater practical relevance this morning than for us to consider the relationship between the sovereignty of God and suffering. 
It's been well said that God had only one son without sin, but he has no sons without sorrow. Every one of us here today are not spared the devastation of adversity and difficulty and trials and tribulations. It comes to every house. It comes to every life. It comes crashing unexpectedly upon our heads. We find ourselves thrown into the furnace of affliction, and we must decide, is God sovereign over the fiery trials in which I find myself? Well, I want us to look at Job chapter 1 and for us to see the teaching of the Word of God on this monumental subject. I want you to note first, beginning in verse 1, what I want to call Job's character. I want you to see scene 1, Job's character, because we're immediately introduced to a man who is the epitome of godliness. In fact, we can argue that this is the most righteous man on the face of the earth. There's not a one of us here today who would not want to trade places with this godly man. I want you to note first his faith in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. By the way, this is a very real place. It's in northern Arabia next to Midian. Job was a real man who lived in a real place whose name was Job. And notice the four things that it says about Job, that he is he was blameless. That, that means not that he was sinlessly perfect, no one is that, but that there is no moral blemish in his life. There, there is no charge that is gla- that can be brought to Job's life. There's no area of moral uh, deficiency in his life that you could stand and look at and see that there is something that lacks integrity or lacks uh, fidelity in his life. A second, he is upright. Literally, the word in the Hebrew means straight. Job was a straight arrow. He walked the straight and narrow path. He is not deviating to the right or, or to the left. Uh, he, is, uh, he is following the holy standard that God has prescribed with a straight line. And then third, fearing God. And this really, when you lift up the, uh, the hood of his life, this is the engine that is driving Job. He is a God-fearing man. Every one of us here today must be a God-fearing person. That is to say, there is holy awe and reverence in your heart towards God. You take God very seriously in your life. And I know that that is a a part of the tone uh, of this church. And it is out of the fear of the Lord really comes joy and happiness in the Lord. But it grows out of the fertile soil of reverential awe Towards God. This is to say that there was a, a weightiness about Job's faith, a gravitas, if you will. He wasn't a spiritual lightweight who was just fl- uh, being tossed back and forth like the waves of the wind. He wasn't a spiritual tumbleweed. No, there was a weightiness. He was anchored in God. He was a God-fearing man. And then notice, turning away from evil. Would to God that would be said of every one of us here today, 
He resisted evil. He shunned temptation. He restrained his tongue and his feet. He guarded his heart. He shielded his eyes. That's a very spiritually mature, godly man, his faith. Look at his family, verse 2. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. This is the abundant blessing of God. Don't overlook even the seven sons and three daughters and intended to convey to us that God has opened the windows of heaven and has poured out the abundance of his blessing upon Job. He is surrounded with children who love God and who fear the Lord. Look at his fortune in verse 3. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. This doesn't really communicate to you and me just how wealthy he was, but it does indicate he probably lived in the patriarchal period because this is how wealth was measured. But suffice to say, this is a very successful businessman. And this is a rare combination, someone who is both godly and successful in the business realm. It hasn't gone to his head. Uh, He is a man who has uh, wealth, but he also is very humble and circumspect in his walk with the Lord. So much so at the end of verse 3, his fame, and that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. That's pretty good. The the greatest man, uh, that man was the greatest of all the men of the East? I mean, I'd settle for being the greatest man in a closet. (laughs) He is the greatest man in all of the East. I mean, he stands out as the very virtue and epitome of what God considers to be godly. Greatest in wealth, greatest in reputation, greatest in influence, greatest in, in, in clout. Greatest in spirituality, greatest in practical righteousness. And look at his fathering in verse 4. He's the total package. This is the the spiritual renaissance man. Look at verse 4. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, probably something like a, a birthday. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. I mean, even their... Children got along. There's no sibling rivalries going on here, like in the back seat of our cars. They, they, seven times during the year, they all convene and meet at one of the brothers' house and they laugh together. They, they enjoy one another's company. And it's all the fruit of Job's godly life. It's been said the apple never falls far from the tree. And so it is here with Job. And in verse 5, we see that Job is so deeply concerned for the spiritual welfare of his children that he offers burnt uh, burnt offerings to the Lord on their behalf, lest they had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. He was dad, the family, shepherd. This is Job's character. And what will unfold in this chapter is in no way disciplinary, And it's no way because there are some bad apples around him. He has everything being woven together in the tapestry of his life with with threads of of blessing and God's spiritual uh, prosperity being poured out upon his life. 
And what I want us to see here is that Job is the one who is standing tallest for the Lord in his generation. He is like the tallest tree in the forest that rises above the other trees, that is most deeply rooted, that has grown the highest and spread out its branches the the furthest. And when the storm gathers, and when the electrical storm begins to hurl its thunderbolts down, it is the tallest tree in the forest that proves to be the lightning rod in the fire. Job will not suffer because there is anything wrong about his life. That will be the conclusion of his three big-time friends, Eliezer, Zophar, and Bildad. They will say, Job, just confess your sin. Get right with God. Surely the heavy hand of God's discipline is upon you because there's something wrong in your life. Repent, and God will remove all of this from your life. Now, Job was not suffering because there was anything wrong in his life. Now, sometimes we do. Sometimes there is a a, a reaping and a sowing, and we suffer because of wrong choices that we make. Make no mistake about that. The soul that sins, it shall surely suffer. Sometimes we suffer because others around us make wrong decisions. But in Job's case, he will suffer because there is nothing out of sync in his life. He is marked out to suffer by God because there is everything right about his life. It is a privilege to suffer, to be considered worthy by God, to be thrown into the fire. Anyone can be a Christian when the sun is shining. Anyone can walk on the sunny side of Hallelujah Avenue. That doesn't take much grace. But to be thrown into the fire of affliction and to say, though the Lord slay me, yet will I praise Him. That requires deep roots in the Lord. So I want you to see second. We've seen Job's character, and I wonder to what extent your character matches up with what we see with Job. I think every one of us here today ought to seriously look at verse 1 And even tonight, as we would pray and go to bed to ask the Lord, God, make me blameless. God, make me upright. Make me a God-fearing person. God, how do I need to turn away from evil? But I want you to note now, second, beginning in verse 6, Job's conspirators. Scene 2. We've seen scene 1, Job's character. I want you to now see scene 2, Job's conspirators. And as we come to verse 6, this is one of those rare times in the Bible when God pulls back the veil and we who are here on earth, we who cannot see the invisible world of heaven, the veil is pulled back and we are allowed to see 
into the throne room of God and we are allowed to see the, the scene before God and the transactions that occur and the dialogue and the discussion and the initiative that proceeds forth from the throne of God. We sung earlier before the throne of God above. Here is the throne of God above. Note verse 6. Now there was a day. Stop right there. That is to indicate to us, this is a day like any day. This is everyday occurrence in heaven. This is not a day that comes on the, the eternal calendar once a millennium. Day after day after day after day. What we see here happens again and again and again. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God here refer to angelic beings, and the reason that we know that is later in the book of Job, chapter 38, verse 7, there the, the angels are pictured as sons of God singing at the time of creation when God creates the created order and the angels are there singing the praises of God, they themselves having just been created. And so they come to present themselves before the Lord. That means they've been away from the Lord. They come now back to the Lord, and they have been away from the Lord doing the Lord's work, doing the Lord's bidding. They have been given uh, orders from headquarters, if you will, and commissioned and sent out from the throne of God to serve the purposes of God. And by the way, once we are in heaven, we're not going to be sitting around on cloud bank and, and people dropping uh, grapes into our mouth and, and plucking a harp. That, quite frankly, bores me to tears. We've been created in the image of God, and part of being created in the image of God is a sense of, of, of duty and work, and I want to glorify God by, by serving Him and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that comes to me. And when we're in heaven, that will only be intensified, and we will serve God with pure hearts and the pleasure that will come from us as we report back to His throne again and again and again. That's what the angels are seen doing here, and they are eager to come back to the throne of God and to receive the next day's assignment. And we read, and Satan, wow, does that not just leap off the page? And Satan also came among them. I know what you're thinking. I thought God is infinitely holy and no sinner can come before the throne of an infinitely holy God. What is the evil one doing in the presence of the holy one? Well, we know what he is doing, but how he is allowed admission, I simply do not know. We do know that Satan was originally the highest of the angelic order. He was Lucifer's son of the morning, that he had the highest and closest proximity to the throne of God among all of the angels, and that he fell because iniquity was found in his heart and he led a conspiracy, a, cons a, a, a coup against God. You talk about slick, you talk about shrewd, you talk about cunning. Lucifer was able to convince a third of the angels in the very presence of God 
to follow him and not follow God. Satan is taught in seven of the Old Testament books by every New Testament writer and by Christ himself. Uh, The devil is not some figment of some medieval imagination. He is presented in the Bible to us as a real foe that each one of us faces. He is called in the Bible Satan, the devil, Lucifer, Beelzebub, Belial, the evil one, the tempter, the ruler of this world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the accuser of the brethren, the old serpent, the great dragon, a roaring lion, Apollyon. He is presented in the Bible as a murderer, a liar, a sinner, a tempter, a perverter, a counterfeiter, an oppressor, a persecutor. He is quite simply the evil one. And here he stands in the midst of the sons of God, in the midst of the angels, before the throne of a holy God in heaven. And what is Satan here to, what is he here doing? Well, the answer is found in his name, Satan, which means to attack to accuse, to slander. And by the way, you and I are never more like the devil than when we are slandering someone else's character. The word signifies that in heaven, Satan is an opponent against the people of God, before God, acting as a prosecuting attorney, bringing criminal charges against the elect of God. Revelation 12, verse 10 says, quote, He is the accuser of the brethren, close quote, and he does it day and night. He is continually bombarding heaven and digging up dirt on all of our lives and presenting a case against us before God. And let me tell you, there is dirt in our lives, is there not? He is not having to invent charges. Every one of us needs an advocate at the right hand of God the Father to represent us, to plead our cause. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know He's never lost a case. And all who have entrusted their lives to His saving hands, He pleads the merit of His own righteousness and His own blood, and none of the elect of God will ever perish. But there is Satan day after day after day. You know, sin makes you stupid. And no one is more insane than the devil himself. And here he is, his avowed purpose to indict the people of God in the high court of heaven with their sins before the Holy One. In verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, now please note who initiates this conversation. Who puts this ball into play? From where do you come? The question is not asked because the Lord does not know. God knows everything. God has never learned anything. 
The question is to, for there to be the admission of this evidence in the courtroom of heaven to secure the confession from the devil himself. From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Let me tell you, that is in order to create great havoc and great devastation upon the earth. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, which was read earlier today, says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I want you to know he's picked up your scent and he is stalking you and he he is on your track and he has demons and minions who have already hatched plans to bring destruction in your life. And if you do not know that, you need to wake up spiritually. You have a real adversary. And we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. What is Satan doing here on the earth? He is blinding minds so that people cannot see the truth. He is snatching up and stealing God's Word when it is sown out. He is opposing God's work. He is inflicting disease. He is tempting immorality. He is sowing snares and tares among the wheat. He is attacking God's Word. He is spreading false doctrine. He is deceiving the nations. And he is inciting persecution against the church. So notice verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? Do you see the divine initiative here? All that Job will suffer will be by divine appointment, by divine sovereignty. It is God who throws Job's name into the ring. In fact, it is God who issues this challenge. It's not just that He brings Job's name up. He challenges the devil. Have you considered my servant Job. Notice what God says about Job. We already read it in verse 1, but just so that we would know, yes, this is a correct estimate of Job's character. Notice in verse 8, but there's no one like him. (laughs) He is in a spiritual class by himself. He is the tallest tree in the forest. A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. I want to ask you, right now before the throne of God, are you so God-fearing that the Lord would say, have you considered my servant, John? Are you so turning away from evil Are you so blameless that God would pull your name out of his 
arsenal and put it on the table before the devil and say, have you considered my servant Aaron, Mark? Have you considered T? Have you considered Lynn? You know, too many of us are not even in the game enough to have our name put out on the table. We're content to be behind the stands, not even out on the field in the middle of the action. What a privilege it is to be so on the front lines of service with the Lord, to be living for God at the intersection of Main and Broad Street out in the middle of the world, that the devil would, that the Lord would put our name in front of the devil and say, have you considered my servant, Job? Now I want you to see in verse 9 how intelligent, how shrewd, and how cunning the devil is. Listen, we're not up against a cartoon character. We are one who has created the highest of the angelic beings. We are wrestling with supernatural genius and intelligence that is corrupted by gross evil. I want you to see verse 9. God's words are no more in the air. Have you considered my servant Job, but that the devil returns serve and immediately puts this into play? So many times I've been in a conversation with someone and I've given an okay answer. It's not until I get in the car and drive home, I'm sitting in the den and I think, oh, I wish I had said this. The devil is so brilliant. He has been waiting for this moment. He has queued up this answer. It is spring-loaded and ready to come back at God. Verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? That is a devastating sentence. That is prosecution. That is indictment. That is criminal charge against both Job and against God. It is an indictment against Job that the reason that Job serves God is because God has been so good to him that you would never worship God for God You would never worship God for His holiness. You would never worship God for the beauty of His righteousness. You would never worship God for Him, for Himself and for His person. No, the only reason you worship God is because of all the gifts that He gives to you. And His eye is on verse 2 and on verse 3. All this cattle, all these children, all of these blessings. Yeah, that's why you worship God. You worship God for all of these reasons. And it's an indictment against God as well that, God, you have bought worshipers. You are an ATM machine. 
And people come to church and they put in their praise and they put in their blessings and all they're after is what you will give to them. It is a slamming indictment against God. Does Job fear God for nothing? It is a rhetorical question implying a negative answer. No, he does not fear God for nothing. He fears God for what he can get out of God. This is the prosperity prosperity gospel on steroids. This is the health, wealth gospel gone mad. This is the name it and claim it mentality run wild. Notice verse 10. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Uh, This hedge is a metaphorical expression. He doesn't mean like a a, a green hedge, like like Mark would put in around a, a house. He's talking about the invisible hand of God's protection and providence that the invisible hand of God's presence around Job's life, shielding him providentially. How many times has God spared us uh, a wreck, a plane crash, a, a child being run over, etc., etc., that even we are unaware of? Oh, the, the hedge that God has built around us that we even got to church today without being killed. It is the, the goodness of God that has done this. And without this hedge, we're all dead people. But have you not made a hedge about Him? And all that he has, note, on every side. You know what this implies? The devil has been trying to break into his house for a long time. And if I can bring Job down, the most righteous man of the east, when you strike the shepherd, all the sheep scatter. If I can cut down the big timber in the forest, the other trees will cave in. And notice he says, on every side... The devil has tried to come in the front door, the back door, the side door. The devil has tried to climb down the chimney to get into his kitchen, to get into his life. And he can't crack the code. You know why? Because God is absolutely sovereign. Sovereign. There is no entrance of Satan apart from God's permission from heaven. I want you to know, as Martin Luther said, that the devil is God's devil. And God will use the devil for his own purposes. God is so wise, God can pick up a crooked stick and draw a straight line. And God will use the devil for the higher purposes of his own inscrutable will. So notice, the devil says, You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. That's the indictment. 
Now, the first time we heard Satan talk, he came slithering on to the page of redemptive uh, history in Genesis chapter 3, and you remember what was the thrust of that temptation? It was that God is holding out on you, Miss Eve. God is not good to you. He says, you cannot eat from this tree, which is the knowledge of good and evil. She lived in paradise. She had the whole planet in a perfect world. She even had a perfect husband at this point. And the devil riveted her attention on the one tree on planet earth that she could not eat from and staked his case that God is not good to you. And by the way, he'll try that strategy with you as well. There'll be one little thing that somebody else will have that you don't have and you'll be so focused in and you'll go into a pity party at times and go, oh, why doesn't this work out for my life? And you don't see that you are drowning in an ocean of God's goodness in your life. Here, it's the very opposite. And I want you to see this. The devil said to Eve, God is not good to you. Now, the devil says to God, you're too good to them. And what the devil is trying to do is to pit man against God and pit God against man. And he steps back and doesn't even have to lift a finger. And he's trying to incite man against God, God against man. The devil is absolutely brilliant in the insanity of his evil ways. Notice verse 11. Now he tightens the screws. Now comes the hammer blow. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. In other words, remove the hedge. Put your hand on him, God. We all know you're the sovereign primary cause of all that there is. I can't. You can. God Put forth your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely, he will surely, he will surely curse you and blaspheme you. You strip the bark of his life. You remove his kids. You remove his business. You remove his possessions. You remove his reputation. You remove his influence. He won't be there next Sunday at church. He'll be back with the Rat Pack. He'll be back with his old friends. He won't worship God for you. So verse 12. This is hardball. This is not a drama, some skit in church. This is as real as it gets. This is more real than the seat you're seated on right now. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Primary cause, God. Primary sovereignty, God. 
And there is now permission granted to the secondary causality, the God of this age, the prince of this world, Satan. You may color between the lines in this box and you may not go any further. Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. God is in total, complete control of this. God who is infinitely wise. God who is absolutely sovereign. God who is eternally love. Has thrown Job's name into the ring and has marked him out to suffer, not because of anything that Job has done in his life, but for the higher cause of this challenge in heaven between God and Satan, that God would have great glory brought to his name, that the devil would be shamed, and in the presence of all of the, uh, the angels, that there would be greater praise come to God, that the faith that God instills in his children and in his believers, it will not waver, it will not crack, it may weaken at times, but the true believer of God will not walk out on God. God, who is the author and perfecter of faith, creates and puts within his children such a living faith, a true faith, it will never implode. It may go through the dark night of the soul. It may walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That faith may totter at times, but it will never dwindle down such that a believer become an unbeliever. That will never happen. Impossible. This is the challenge in heaven, and it is repeated again and again and again and again. And there have been times in your life, unknown to you, that this has been the playing out of this very scene in heaven involving you. That is true. Job has no idea this is going on. This is on the other side of the veil. Job is down here on the earth. He's just minding his own business at this point. He knows nothing of the devastation that is to break upon his life. I wonder what might be soon to break upon the horizon of your life. You say, you're being negative. No, I am being realistic. And I want us to be prepared today, right now, for when that phone call comes. I want us to be prepared right now for when the doctor clears his throat and says to you. I want us to be ready right now when your banker shakes his head and says to you what you do not want to hear. How are we going to respond when we are in the trenches of life and we are thrown a fastball and we... It is coming so hard and so fast at us that we have no time to even ready or prepare ourselves. We must prepare ourselves right now. Now I want you to see the third scene. Scene three. Job's catastrophes. 
Verse 13. What follows now is the unleashing of the devastating attack by the devil upon Job's life. I can assure you that the devil did not wait a month, did not wait a year before carrying out the green light permission that has been given to him. The, the, uh, the, the exit ramp uh, has flashed green. He can, or the entrance ramp, he can now proceed to come after Job's life. And we see round one in verse 13. Now it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. Again, this is like a Norman Rockwell painting. I mean, this is a courier in eyes etching. I mean, all is right with the world. The children are all gathered together. Uh, they are They are happy. And in verse 14, a messenger came to Job. There is this interruption, this, this awkward interruption, and blurts out of his mouth. The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked them. The Sabaeans were a band of, of terrorizing robbers from Arabia in Sheba, and they descended now down upon Job's property and and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the blood uh, of the sword. Listen, Satan is so powerful. He is a he is a murderer. John eight verse forty four, First uh, John three verse twelve. He is the one who incited Cain against Abel. He is the one who incited uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira and filled their heart with sin. And this is the devil behind the scenes manipulating the Sabaeans like pawns on a chessboard and filled their hearts with unholy hatred and evil rage and incited them to kill Job's servants and to steal his animals. Yes, Satan has great power. Listen, we're not in single-A ball. We're playing in the big leagues against a real foe. And the servant said, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Do you think that just happened, that one servant escaped to bring the devastating news to Job? Round 2, verse 16, while he was still speaking... The words are still in the air. Another came. He comes bursting through the same door in front of Job. The fire of God fell from heaven. That is a lightning bolt. And it struck the, the dry kindle uh, of the landscape. And the whole countryside went up in flames and burned up the sheep and the servants. All 7,000 sheep were burned up. And all of Job's servants who took care of those sheep were burned up. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Second verse, same as the first. Round three is in verse 17. While he was still speaking, these messengers are beginning to, to stack up at the front door of Job's house. While he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans, that, that's a nomadic group of people who were warmongers who lived in the Arabian desert. Satan already had a control of their lives. All he had to do was reroute them to Job's house and to Job's property. The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants. 
with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Do you think that just happened? Do you think this is a coincidence? And now verse 18 is the hammer blow of all hammer blows. Every parent here today, this is your worst nightmare. This is your worst nightmare. While he was still speaking, verse 18, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters. And at this point, we almost turn our hand away as if we can see a a car wreck that's about to happen and we just can't watch it with our eyes. We want to shield ourselves. We don't even want to see this or hear this. Your sons and your daughters were eating, eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a, a great wind. That's a, that's a, a tornado-like twister. A, a, a desert whirlwind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. Do you think that whirlwind just happened to hit precisely the four corners of that house and brought it down upon their children in the midst of their laughter and they died, all ten, at one moment and I alone have escaped to tell you. And in a moment, within seconds, Job's entire life has gone up in flames. All that he has worked for, all that he has saved for, all that he has invested, all that he has raised, all that he has nurtured, all that he has loved, it has all been taken away. Rightly did Martin Luther write, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. You and I face this very same devil, and he is incensed and incited to come against God by destroying our lives And worse, destroying our testimony and destroying our witness and to take away the praise of God from our lips. Now I want you to note finally, scene four. In verse 20, Job's confidence In this last scene, we see Job standing over ten fresh graves on a barren hillside with the howling wind of pain roaring over the horizon. His world has come to a crashing halt. Think of his shock Think of his grief. Think of his pain. 
How will he respond? Who will win the challenge? Who will win the wager in heaven? Will the devil? Will God? Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground. Job is not the bionic believer who feels nothing. Job is exactly like you and me. His eyes become a fountain of tears. His heart is crushed. He staggers under the weight of this ordeal, trial, tribulation that is just dropped upon his head. And the devil now strains his ear to hear the anticipated cursings of God's name, to hear the expected blasphemies of God's name. The devil is, is a professional at this. He can reduce a man to screaming into the face of God in a moment. He has heard other men spit into the face of God. And the devil now strains to hear one more would-be believer blaspheme the name of God. I want you to note a couple things here. Number one, submission. At the end of verse 20, we read these two words, and worshipped. The word for worship here is shaha, which means to prostrate oneself in the presence of one who is superior. Job humbles himself in the presence of God and relinquishes himself to God as he never has before. It's been well said that our trials will either make us or they will break us. They will either drive us closer to God or they will drive us away from God, but no one enters a trial and walks out the same. And for Job, he chose to surrender his life and to worship God. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the presence of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. If you are going this day through the midnight of your soul, I call upon you to submit your life to the Lordship of Christ. Second, recognition. Submission. Now, recognition. Notice verse 21, how Job recognizes the sovereignty of God. 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Let me tell you, that is an eternal perspective. I didn't bring anything to the table, and I'm not walking away from the table with anything. I entered this world a naked man, and I shall leave a naked man. And these cattle and these sheep, they're just stuff. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Can you imagine the theology of Job that he has at this point? Uh, he's been reading A.W. Pink, I guess. <laughs> this is unbelievable. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Job recognizes the sovereign prerogative of God to give and to withhold and it is all in God's hands. He understands in, I'm sure, some elementary way, and he has no idea of what has taken place in heaven and the other side of the veil. He just knows that the primary causality of all things is God and that God works through secondary causalities. God works through the devil. He works through the Chaldeans. He works through the Sabaeans. He works through the, the lightning bolt. He works through the, the whirlwind that would come. Those are all secondary causes. There is one primary cause, one primary architect, one primary author, and it is God from Him, through Him, to Him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. This recognition in Job's life, as Calvin said on his deathbed, I kiss the rod that smites me. The recognition of the sovereignty of God, he makes no mistakes. All his ways are perfect. Even this. I read, not long ago, buried my father. If I did not believe that all of our days are written in a book, when as yet there is not one of them, I think I would go insane to see a loved one suffer. But to know that from before the foundation of the world, God has predetermined the number of days that I will live in this world, and it is the perfect number. I would not want my father to live five seconds past God's appointed time. I go into the hospital, I see our church dealing with loved ones, and I see believers from other churches in the same hospital room. I praise God for our people, and I see them humbly, quietly, praising God and accepting what the Lord gives and what the Lord takes away. And I see other church members in that same hospital room cursing the doctors, threatening to sue the hospital, all but pushing nurses because you did not do this for my father. What a difference this makes in the way we live our lives. We're not passive. We are active in our faith. 
and we recognize that God gives and God takes away and it is by perfect wisdom and infinite love. We wouldn't want it any other way. The third word, adoration. Look at the end of verse 21. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He chose to worship God. I'm sure he didn't feel like it in the sense, listen, he's just shaved his head. He has fallen to the ground. He has torn his clothes. That is an outward sign of the reality of his soul and his heart that has been shredded by this devastation. He's not immune to what's been going on as if this doesn't even... He's not a stoic. He's not living in a wax museum as one more statue. And yet, in the midst of this furnace, Job worships God. He praises God that all of His ways are perfect. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when you and I walk this valley, the most powerful witness that we can give to those who watch us and who listen to us, just like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail at midnight were singing hymns of praise to God. Fourth and finally, Resolution. In verse 22, through all this, through all this adversity, through all this pain, through all this ordeal, through all of this staggering loss, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. That tells us verse 20 and 21 is posted before our eyes as the epitome of faith and godliness and a model of virtue. This is how we are to respond in the difficulties of life. Job never knew why. Do you get that? And even if God had explained it, I don't think Job could have even begun to understand it anyway. These lines intersect far above our IQ capacity. It'd be like trying to pour the, the Pacific Ocean into a Dixie cup. For God to give the full explanation to this little peon of a person. All Job needs to know is who, not why. Who? All he needs to know is the person, the character, the being, the perfections of God, and I can trust God in any and every situation. I, I need to close. How will you respond when suffering, when trials, when tribulation come? to your house, how are you responding? Are you responding like Job, 
Do you really believe in the sovereignty of God? It's one thing to trace out the doctrines of grace which we love, praise God. And as people will tell me at times, it's a whole lot harder to live the doctrines of grace. But when we see the infinite sovereignty of God, the towering purposes of God for our lives... Let us all be as Job and fall before the Lord and worship Him and say, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Will that be your response this day? Will you choose by faith to entrust your life and your response to the Lord? Will you praise Him? Will you worship Him? Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Let us pray. Father, for us to sit with Job, and to listen to Job, and to hurt with Job, it drains us because... This is where we find ourselves also at times. We are so grateful that life is not random, that there are no accidents, that you are an intentional God, you are a purposeful God, that there are no maverick molecules in this universe, but all things exist by divine order and are carrying out your perfect plan and will for our lives. And this day you have brought us to this house of the Lord to hear this message. And we pray that you would write it upon the tablets of our hearts, that we would become living epistles of Job 1, that we would have Job's character, but that we would also have Job's confidence. Bring this to pass. In Jesus' name, amen.